Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12 on this Labor Day weekend. John chapter 12, we will get there in just a moment. I want you to begin with me by using your imagination. Imagine with me, if you will. It's easy if you try. It's a common scene that uh, happens in cities across uh, America. Picture that you're on a certain part of town, not the part of town where there are pawn shops and laundry mats and cash advance payday loan stores with bars on the window. Not that part of town, but the part of town where there are upscale fashion malls and fine dining establishments and coffee shops and clothing boutiques and even a country club. And in this part of town, you're sitting next to a park and a lake with a lot of this nice stuff around you. And there's an SUV that pulls up and uh, is stopped at a traffic light there. You're on a park bench. There are benches to sit and Uh, brick paths to stroll next to this lake and this park and this certain part of town. And this SUV pulls up and in this SUV, uh, there you hear music thumping. You hear the music thumping, the window is rolled down and you, you feel the beat, you hear the music, you get the vibe, you listen to the lyrics and the lyrics, the song is a rap tune. It's a rap tune by an African American who lives in another part of town, just a few miles from there. And it's a story, uh, as he's describing what it's like to live in a more violent part of town, a volatile part of town, a, a town where many of the homes are fatherless, and the odds are stacked against him. You can hear it in the song. In fact, the odds are stacked against him. The odds are high that one day he or guys like him will end up dealing drugs, doing time, or dead. And this white boy in this SUV is listening to this song. And you think in your mind how uh, strange it is that he knows the lyrics and is moving with the beats. But does he know the story? And you see, what's being depicted in this song could in many ways be happening only a few miles from this part of town. Now we seek to understand this, and we might label it, we might politicize it, we might say that it's white privilege or it's life in a bubble. Some may say his parents have worked hard to sacrifice for him to make sure that he never has to endure what this song is talking about. Jesus comes to us and he wants us, invites us to answer a central question, what is the good life? And in answering this question, what is the good life, we need to realize what is life. There's a Greek word in the New Testament, Z-O-E, Zoe. It's a call to live in abundance. But it's interesting when you think about this scenario that you imagine in your mind. Many people in our world live with so much danger around them that they're seeking safety and ease and comfort. But some of us have so much safety, ease, and comfort that we're needing a little danger, a little grit, a little streets. What is life and what's worth gaining and what's worth saving? Is your life worth protecting? Look what Jesus says in John 12, verses 24 to 25. He put it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This Jesus speaks, these words he speaks into an agricultural 
society. Not a lot of farmers in this room, I imagine. You've probably been praying for some of the farmers you know in your family or extended family. But Jesus speaks in this agricultural world and he talks about a revolution. Two revolutions, in fact. One revolution is something so basic and rudimentary, we probably don't even think about it. Think about the revolution when mankind discovered for the first time what you could do with a seed. That a seed, I mean, think about it. If you put a pebble in the ground, nothing happens. If you put a seed in the ground, something happens. Something in the ground says to that seed, let's have a root, branch out. And something in the sky says to something in the ground, come up, come forth. There is this revolution. And that led, there was an observation. Someone made this observation and saw the connection between a seed that was put in the ground and then something that came up, something tiny and green that came up through the dirt. And it was the beginning of this revolution where for the first time people realized you could plant and because you could plant, you could plant. You could stay. You could create culture and civilization. You could have art and architecture and tools. You could have education. You could have a home. You could stay somewhere. And what Jesus is saying about seeds, He's also saying about you and I. It it is, if you will, a second revolution. Just as humankind a long time ago, very distant ancestors discovered that they could plant and therefore plant. Jesus wants to teach us that there's something. There's something in you and who you are intrinsic to your worth and value and dignity. And that you won't be able to live unless you realize that you need to die. In order to experience life, there has to be a burial. Consider what Jesus would go on to say. In fact, if you open your Bibles, brought one or grabbed one in front of you, turn from John 12 to John 15, just a few chapters over. Those of you who don't have one on your lap, we'll read it from here. John 15, he teaches this, staying with this idea, this theme of a seed being planted and fruit that can be produced. Jesus says this, Abide in me, what an invitation, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So who's the vine? Okay, 9.30, did really well. 11, okay, okay. We'll be patient with you. Who's the vine? Yeah, good. Okay, almost at 9.30 level. Christ is the vine. Who are the branches? We are. And we get kind of confused about this. Really, we, it's not so much the identity as the role of the branch. Sometimes we think it's easy. There's a default mechanism in us that we think the job of the branch is to bear fruit. Is that the branch's job? Do you see that anywhere? If your Bible's open, you have an advantage. Do you see that anywhere in John 15, 4 to 5, where the job of the branch is to bear fruit? The job of the branch is not to produce fruit. The job of the branch is to abide in the vine. And can I tell you, this is where religion gets it wrong. This is where if you're frustrated and fatigued with your spiritual experience, you might have missed what it means to really practice the way of Jesus. 
I want to say it again. The job of the branch is not to produce fruit. The job of the branch is to abide in the vine. That can be really freeing if we let it get into us. I love um, being pastor of Fondren Church. I love the building that we inherited, that we now own. We, five years ago, we moved in here with a good faith agreement. Any lawyers in the room? We just had a handshake. Nothing legal, nothing binding with Woodland Hills, but we got that in place thanks to some lawyers a few months later. So we had something, and now we own this. And isn't it a beautiful building? I know ultimately the church is a people, right? You believe that? We preach that. The church is ultimately a people. But look at this beautiful building. Isn't it grand? They built this sanctuary, some of you know, in 1948. But it took them 15 to 20 years later to add the stained glass. So just glance around, if you will. Isn't this beautiful? If you're sitting close enough on the outside, you'll see gold inscriptions on the bottom of all the stained glass and you'll see the names of people who donated. I just want to say today, if you donate a lot of money to Fondren Church, we'll put your name up somewhere. Uh, depending on how much it is, you'll get a chief seat at the synagogue. You'll be, you'll be uh, respected more than ever if you donate largely. But hey, no, for real, people donated. There were families and we've actually had a couple of families worship with us um, here from time to time who's parents, grandparents made a donation for the stained glass. Isn't it beautiful? And that's my favorite. If you haven't ever seen it, uh, just glance, uh, look up there if you would. And in that, that's just, that's not run of the mill. There's nothing ordinary, cheap about that. It's, it's high end. It's, it's gorgeous. Daniel Hicks, our communications director, just this past month put on our website, you can go and look about the history of this stained glass and what each, uh, is depicting what gospel truth each is depicting all around us. We have brides-to-be and their mothers who come here checking out this place, and they're drawn to the stained glass. They think, ah, I want to get married here, and we love that. We, we welcome that. I want to show you a picture on the screen now that we've enjoyed this stained glass. And by the way, it's cool when you work at a church like this. I get to come in. I get to leave my office just behind this wall, and sometimes I come in here to get away from people, uh, especially our staff sometimes. And I'll, I'll hide in here and I'll pray and think um, and look and just my eyes always go to the light. And I'm drawn to that. Look at the um, largest stained glass window installed, designed in this century. You could see this in person if you went to Church of the Resurrection, pastored by Adam Hamilton in Kansas City, Missouri. The largest stained glass window, uh, thousands of people donated some substantially in memory of and honor of someone that they've lost or someone that they love and admire and made these donations. And in this, uh, you see, of course, the central figure of the stained glass, this work of art, is, of course, Christ, the central figure of all human history. There are three gardens that you have to look closely to see, and the three gardens, I learned, depict three gardens in Scripture, beginning, middle, and end. And in the beginning, the story of creation is the Garden of Eden, where there was a union, man and woman, and their union with their Creator. And then at the end, on the far right, there's a depiction of the garden found in Revelation 22. Uh, Revelation 22 talks about a tree in the garden, a river that runs through it, and it talks about the leaves, the fruit that is produced. And one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Bible that the world needs to hear desperately today, it uses this poetic and beautiful phrase, these trees produce leaves for the healing of the nations. 
How wonderful to think about the culmination, to think about the meta-narrative of the world depicted in the Bible, the creation account, but the fall, the rebellion, and then the story of redemption of our Creator entering into the world, and then the story of the culmination of it all. And in this middle depiction is the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed one of the most poignant prayers ever. We talked about last week when we talked about conquering by yielding or surrendering. And in this garden, Jesus had a disunion. He had a disunion with the Father. There was a moment of betrayal. There was a disunion so that there could be a union. What does it mean to abide in Christ? My life has been influenced by a lot of people. I've been mentored and discipled by men, particularly in my younger years. Um, but I, I tell you, and I tell some of you quite often, I've had been influenced greatly by the lives of my grandmothers. I never knew a grandfather, but Miss Mavis, who died at almost 101 years old last summer, and my grandmother Ruth, who died in 1995. But I was influenced greatly by them, and Ruth, in particular, loved hymns. They both did, but Miss Ruth, my mom's mother, she loved hymns, and her favorite was uh, In the Garden, where the lyrics, uh, it's composed this way. He walks with me, and He talks with me. Do y'all know this? He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He... Okay. And He tells me that I am His own. We hear voices, don't we? Psychologists tell us that the voices that we hear are more often than not negative. But think about a life. Just for a moment, suspend the cynicism you might have, the skepticism, and just think, what would a life look like abiding in Jesus? What would a life look like if there was uh, this disunion in your life, if there was a burial and a death and you died and you put what you needed to put, that old self in the casket, and you were raised to truly walk in this newness of life, and you... You experienced just a taste of life in the garden with Christ. Walking with Him, talking with Him, Him telling you your real worth and identity is found in Him. It's not the grade you made or didn't make. It's not the promotion that you got or didn't get. It's not the large voice in your life that's telling you that you're not whatever enough. It's Christ saying, you're mine. The job of the branch is not to produce fruit. Be free of this striving. The old hamster on the wheel just going around and round, that's not working for us. But to say, I need to abide and I need to receive. Instead of achieving, it's about receiving. And that's the gospel message. I can rest in this and I can walk with Him. There's two word phrase found in the Bible in the New Testament over 150 times. Let me draw a contrast. You really don't find in the New Testament any uh, mention of becoming a Christian, at least not in a transactional sense. That might be surprising to you, but you don't read the New Testament, oh, become a Christian, become a Christian, become a Christian, become a Christian, pray a prayer, pray a prayer, walk the aisle, become a Christian, become a Christian. Not in the transactional sense. But this phrase, over 150 times, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The concern is that you and I would live this way. 
So what does it look like? It's a life of connection. The abiding life is a life of connection. In order to have life, you must be buried. You must be put in the ground and a new person needs to come forth. That's salvation, but it's sanctification. It's growing and being transformed. It's living a life in Christ. It's a life of connection and participation. Question, what's the difference between living in a country that is a democracy and participating in a democracy? Any ideas there? Now, I feel some guilt palpable in the room. You didn't vote, right, on re-election Tuesday this week. What's the difference between living in a country that is a democracy and participation in a democracy? If you're participating in a democracy, you're not just living in the country. You could say you're abiding there, but you're not really abiding. To participate in a democracy, you're reading, you're thinking, you're writing, you're voting, you're volunteering, you're educating yourself and other people as to the impact of the people and the policies and the potential that exist in our nation and its laws. There's a big difference between living in a country that is a democracy and participating in a democracy. Second question, a corollary. What's the difference between attending a dance and dancing? Some of you know this dance is a passion of mine. It's a skill that I have that God gave me. When I feel the beat, I'm a slave to it. Y'all know this. What's the difference between attending a dance and dancing? If you dance, trust me, I know, you feel the beat, right? There's a, you, you move and you risk, whether it's the rumba or the foxtrot or the waltz or the moonwalk or the macarena or the, you know, you get low and twerk or whatever. Uh, whatever the dance is, right, you have to move. You have to do that to experience it. There's a difference between attending a dance and participating in the dance. And so it is in Christ. To be in Christ, there's connection and there's participation as well. When Jesus talks about faith, boy, the American church needs to hear this. When Jesus talks about faith, He's talking about fruit. He's talking about tasting and seeing, encountering and experiencing a love, the love of Christ. And when you taste and see and encounter and experience, there's change and transformation, there's fruit, and people can see it. Like there's... You're, you're never the same again. And that's the idea. In fact, Jesus taught us you will know them by their fruits. How will people know you? By your fruits. What you say you're going to do? No. By the fruit in your life. That's how people will know you. In John 15, later, Jesus will talk about this whole idea of the fruit uh, in our lives. And He says that it is my goal that you would... In fact, you've been chosen and ordained to bear fruit, to bear much fruit and fruit that will remain. Look at John fifteen seven. Jesus says this as a part of His invitation and His promise. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Be careful of that second part. That's the part we focus on and try to, try, we try to twist that part to meet our own selfish means. But we don't focus as we should on the first part. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you. Here's the thing. Something's going to abide in you. Something is abiding in you now. Anger could abide in you. Fear could abide in you. Sleep could be abiding in you. Apathy could be abiding in you. Bitterness could abide in you. Loneliness could be abiding in you. 
How about this? Elevate your thoughts in this regard. The words of Christ and what He says are true can abide in you. How, how can we do this? I want to keep this in front of you. I shared it with some of us, uh, shared it with our church as a whole back in May, but I want to periodically keep it in front of our church. This is important. We talk sometimes around here about three environments and five questions or five practices and nine questions. It flows from this very idea of letting His Word abide in us and us abiding in Him. We talk about these environments. We talk about the row, the chair, and the circle. And the row is where you are today. There's a spiritual authority and motivational dynamic that happens on Sunday morning when God's people are gathered in rows. I pray and charge you to make this a priority. If Fondren Church is your home, be here regularly. If it's not, find another place where you can sit and you can soak and you can worship and be reminded. And But listen, I love when people come and sit in rows, especially on Labor Day weekend. Extra credit for being here today. I, I, I love it. I make a living by people coming in rows. I believe in it. But hear me. This won't mature you. It can motivate you from time to time. But the first time you turn on the radio, the first time someone cuts you off in traffic, or the first time you entertain what you have to do today, or what awaits you tomorrow, the Word, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other things can enter in and choke the Word, and your life will be unfruitful. That's just a little more Jesus for you. But it's true, isn't it? And so as important as this is, it won't mature you. It can motivate you. Come and get the motivation. And don't just come to sit and so come here to serve as well and to engage. So there is the row and there's the circle. It's why we're fanatical about creating a culture of groups here. It's why we ask you to get in circles. We practice what we preach. It's a regular practice for Susan and I. In fact, when our kids are all grown and gone, one of the things they'll remember about us is how we almost on a weekly basis opened up our home for a group of people to talk deeper about what we talk about on Sunday morning and create environments where we can love one another and pray for one another and bear one another's burdens and confess our sins to one another. In fact, uh, my daughter right now on Wednesday night, she devotes many of her nights to go babysit for some people who are also in circles. We're fanatical about it and more and more we're trying to create a culture of groups here where we can be deeper involved in our lives because that is what matures you. I said it a few weeks ago, but most of us are educated beyond our level of obedience. And we run from one Bible study to the next, and we do something on Sunday morning, something else on Sunday night, and we're doing this and doing this. And what we need to do is stop and ponder and think deeply, am I living out what I know? And so a group, especially those of you, and I hope most of us are doing this now, you're in a sermon-based discussion. There's a three-point outline we post every Sunday after the sermon. Connect, engage, and apply. Connect. It's an icebreaker. It's a way to gauge the temperature of the room, to welcome people to your home or the coffee shop or wherever you're meeting and to just open with an open-ended question so people can get on the same wavelength. And then you engage, you look at the Scripture, see what it says, and then you apply. How can my life be different now? So we encourage you to worship, to be in rows, to be in circles, and then spend time in a chair. You alone. I'm convinced that one of the reasons a whole new generation of people are abandoning the Christian faith is because they see a faith that's largely not practiced. Like, listen to me, parents. Y'all got, some of y'all got good doctrine. You got correct theological answers. But do you spend time alone with the Father? Are you abiding in Him and letting His Word abide 
in you. It's a faith that ought to be practiced. Jesus was as busy as anybody. Anybody busy in the room? Jesus was as busy as anybody, but frequently and regularly, daily, He pulled away so He could be alone with the Father when things were pressing in. And if you don't come apart, you will come apart. And that's one of the things that I learned from my Savior, to sit and to think and to take in His Word. Another thing that we talk about beyond the environments of the road, the circle, and the chair is the intake of Scripture. You can hear the Word, read the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, and meditate. It's five ways to intake the Scripture. I learned it when I was in college, and it has sustained me and changed my life. It's easy to hear the Word. You can podcast the sermon. If you're not here on Sunday, we'll let you miss a few. You can tune in later, or you can podcast your favorite preacher who may not be named Robert Green. I'm okay with that. There are much more gifted men and women who teach the Bible, and it makes me proud when you hear the Word and listen regularly. When you're working out, y'all work out, don't you? When you're working out at Fonder and Fitness, I just got some money, a commercial. When y'all are working out at Fonder and Fitness, or wherever you are working out, I, I prefer Fonder and Fitness, you can listen to the Word being preached. You can read the Word, and you can study it where you ask the questions, the observation, interpretation, and application. And then you memorize and meditate. You take it with you. When I was 15 years old, I started shaving and I would start many of those mornings with a three by five card and my scripture memory card and I would tape it above the mirror. And while I was shaving, curbing my incredible masculinity, I would memorize a verse and I would begin the day with it and then take it through. And listen, you can do it too. And here's the thing. Is it for performance? Is it for show? It certainly could be like any good deed. But listen, that's how you begin to take God's Word into you and abide and you allow it to abide and you bathe yourself in it and it can be transformative. Do you ever meditate? Some of us think, oh, it's some weird, ancient, mystical practice. I've said this before. I want to say it again today. If you worry, you meditate. If you worry, you meditate because you are ruminating with that fear. You're losing sleep. Your, your stomach is ulcerating. Uh, you're hard to live with because you're, when you're present, you're not present and you're, you're meditating. I'm calling you as Jesus does to do some positive meditation on the Word of God. Not just emptying your mind, but filling it with good, what is good and noble and true and virtuous. You can change your thinking. You can change your thoughts by letting His Word abide in you. The psalmist put it this way, blessed is the man, that means happy is the person, who does not, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or walk in the way of the wicked, but he delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, a tree whose leaves do not wither and it is planted and it grows next to a stream. Why, y'all? Because of the roots that that tree has. Years and years and years ago, I planted a tree. I've never done that before. I'm not much of a gardener. I planted a tree I love. My favorite smell is probably the scent of orange blossoms. And I planted this orange tree and I, I watered it. I planted it, I watered it, I fertilized it, I put miracle grow on it. And man, I just I watched it grow and began to enjoy it. And we were gone one week. And our uh, six-year-old neighbor, six-year-old neighbor, uprooted that orange blossom tree. Now what happened? When, when I came home, what happened? to that tree. It died. What happened to that six-year-old kid? 
He lived. Come on, people. He lived. He lived, but I, had, I did have some words with his parents. Look, the, a tree is only as healthy as its roots. So, those of us, and look, here's a weakness of mine. I, my personality is wired this way. To be a connector, a networker, to project an image toward people, to, to slap hands and sh- you know, shake hands, slap backs, and to, to connect with people. And sometimes I can be so focused on the outside, but what matters most about Robert Greene is what matters most about you. It's what people don't see. It's the roots. It's the stuff that's below the surface. And is it healthy? Have you died the death you need to die? What in your life, let's talk sanctification, growing in Christ, what in your life needs to be put in the casket? It just needs to be buried. What newness do you need to see in your life? You'll see that to the extent that you abide in Him and let His words abide in you. When I'm reading the Bible, I've shared this with you before, but I try to make it a regular practice almost daily, certainly a few times a week, where I ask a series of nine questions. Is there a truth to believe, a promise to claim? Is there a command to obey? Is there an example to follow? Is there an error to avoid? Is there an attitude to change? Is there a sin to confess? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there something to praise God for? And those nine questions, when I'm hearing and reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the Word of God, can can produce fruit in me. And so when I'm tempted to sin, and I do, when I'm lured into worry or not being my best self, I have a greater opportunity to see the Word of God be victorious in me and to bear fruit in me. When Jesus talked about faith, He talked about fruit. He talked about change and transformation, tasting and seeing and encountering something, His love, in which you will never, ever be the same. Closing, rounding out home, John 15. Let's go deeper in it. If you have your Bibles open, we'll close it out. As the Father has loved me, listen to the intimacy here. And this is where not only, uh, real quick, look at me, not only do we mess up the job description with the vine and the branches, not only do we wrongly think that the job of the branches is to bear fruit, but we, we have a really skewed view of who God is. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Pause. What if I mess up? What if I sin? What if I disobey? What if I lust? What if I lie? What if I cheat? What if I betray somebody? You get back on the vine. You confess, you repent, and you get back on the vine. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. What an invitation. What an invitation. So here is how we get it wrong in our view of God. Sometimes we see it this way. God is out there and we must appease Him. Subtle distinction, but it's life-changing. But here's what Jesus is saying in John 15, inviting these disciples to become friends and inviting you to become friends as well. Instead of God is out there, we must appease Him. Jesus is saying God is here. We get to please Him. What's the difference? This is a distant authority figure. This is a view of God as a dad who doesn't love, who never says it, 
never really demonstrates it. In fact, is a cold authority figure who can never be pleased. And this God is vindictive. This God punishes and this God must be appeased. This is tribal. As advanced, as intelligent, as educated as we have become, we still fault, default to this. We still see God this way. He's someone that we must appease. And He's out there. And Jesus, when He's talking about abiding, when He's talking about being buried, when He's talking about dying in order to live, being raised to walk in this newness of life, He is saying, see God as a loving Father who is here and we get to please Him. You see, earlier when we put up John 15, 7 and said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and then I quickly started talking about three environments and five practices and nine questions, you're probably thinking, oh, there's just more to do. And can I tell you, it's taken me a lot of years to really get this deeper in me. And I still struggle from time to time with religiosity. But man, this is something I get to do. Experience the love of a father. To let his truth replace my lives or the lives of the world. It's why, yes, my job is challenging, but why I revel and savor the moments to preach and share with people that the words and the teaching and the life and character of Jesus is true and it's transformative. Man, pick your subject. Anger, lust, adultery, murder, worry, anxiety, eternity, revenge, forgiveness. Pick it. What Jesus teaches and how He lives is superior. And it's better. Always better. And it's why I have the confidence to stand up here. And I get it, it's faith, right? God is not visible, He's not tangible, He's not audible. You will struggle and I will struggle to believe and to follow. But oh, when we follow, when we participate, when we take time to let the Word abide in us. And what an invitation, because if this is my view of God, man, I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to pray to Him. I'm not going to practice what He practices. I'm not even going to try. I'm only going to try to please you if I think I can please you. And what I've learned is, I can't do that very well. Not to a lot of people. I hope you know your few, right? I hope you know your one, and then you got your few. No matter what your family looks like, I hope you know who your few are. That you really seek to please, and not the crowd. Telling you, I'm telling you from someone who knows, that doesn't work. But we seek to please only if we can. And can I say that the Father, in the person of Jesus, the one who showed love like nobody ever showed love, is pleased with you. And He loves you. I want to close quickly with this picture. In fact, some of you read this book or saw this movie, um, Unbroken. It's a story of this man, um, Louis Zapparini. This is a picture of him at about 28 years old. When he was young, he describes himself as a semi-delinquent juvenile. He got in trouble, but he could fly. He could run like the wind, and he became a famous Olympian, a great Olympic gold medal winner as a, as a track star. He was in World War II. He fought and was shot down. He, as a 32-year-old man, spent 47 days on a raft with two other men. One of those men died. And in this account, depicted also in the movie, he ate an albatross, eyeballs and all. He said it tasted like a chocolate sundae. Just to survive. Just to make it. 
he was picked up. They were picked up by the Japanese. One man dies in that company of three. They were floating 47 days. The Japanese pick them up. And if you know anything about World War II, you know the Japanese POW camps were brutal. He spent many, many days there. The Allies rescued, and he was brought home. But in this story, Lewis suffered some of his greatest. It wasn't, it wasn't war and death and seeing friends get killed. It wasn't being shot down, shark attack, sunburn, dehydration. It wasn't even a sadistic, torturous prison guard. It was how he was tortured inside with fear and rage, anger and bitterness. The story of this man, this great Olympian and World War II fighter pilot, this man comes home. What should be a life of freedom, gratitude, joy and peace, he's suffering tremendously. He lied, he stole, he gambled, he lost a bunch of money. One time he even choked his wife in a very violent rage. Everybody that loved him was driven away from him. And he was even tempted to end his own life. His wife comes back. One more chance. Predicated on the reality that he would promise to attend a revival meeting coming up. She would drag him to a crusade led by a young preacher named Billy Graham. And in this crusade, thousands there, a place packed out. Billy Graham and his team did what they often do. They closed the service by singing and calling forward lost lambs. And this man didn't want to come forward. But he found his feet turning toward Graham. Remembering a promise he'd made on an open ocean at sea. Lord, if you save me, I will serve you forever. Oh, but the rage. Oh, but the demons. Oh, but the suffering. But his heart was opened up to a love, a divine love, greater than all that he had been through. Years later, in fact, just a few years ago, he died at the ripe old age of 94 years old. He was slated to speak at a church that I know about in Portland. I know the pastor there. He'd fallen and broken a 93-and-a-half-year-old leg. So couldn't fly, but his 70-year-old son drove him to Portland. He was so desirous to speak and give his testimony, to tell people about Jesus and the change that he can make. What needs to go in the casket? That a life has to be buried. A life has to die to itself in order to be resurrection resurrected you only live unless you die he testified at this church in portland this was a couple of years after the movie came out what jesus did for this man he has done for millions upon millions and he can do for you let me pray for us and over us As our team comes, I want you to envision that very question. What needs to go in the casket? What needs to be buried? What newness do you need to see?
How can you abide in Him? Allow His words to abide in you. Again, no real mention in all the New Testament about becoming a Christian transactionally. But mention after mention, in fact, invitation after invitation to live a life of participation and connection, to live a life that could be in Christ, abiding in Him and letting His Word abide in you. Father, I pray that we would be a people that would taste and see, encounter and experience, that we would produce fruit. Lord, that Your Spirit would live in us in a strong way. God, that we would less and less view You as a God who is out there, a God that we must appease, and more and more see You as a God who is here, the God that we get to please. And You are pleased with faith expressing itself through love. You're pleased with a life that bears fruit. And God, I pray that we would be kingdom-minded people just as banks have branches. Lord, there is a kingdom of God and we are branches of that kingdom. Strengthen the branch called Fondre. That we would be more and more kingdom-minded and we would realize the culmination of it all. It began in a garden and it ends in a garden. We point back to a Savior in a garden who loved and died for us and rose again. And we are to live an abiding life, a life that points others to You in sacrificial love that will be in the end for the healing of the nations in a new home, a new heaven, a new earth, a garden full of life and fruit in Jesus. Amen. Would you stand today and would you sing with us as Lauren and Tia and the team uh, lead us? This altar uh, is open for y'all to come and to pray. If you want today to kneel or if you want to grab one of us on our team, if there's a decision in life that you need to make. We would love to be here for you. And so let's sing today. Uh, Let's sing loud and let's participate uh, in this time of invitation.